hear the word of our God. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this this glimpse of an amazing event. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see by your Spirit's working to understand what was going on that day. We ask this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. The baptism of of Christ is one of those uh, uh, things in the gospel, events in the gospel that's so important it makes it into all four. There aren't a lot of instances like that. In fact, uh, all of chapters one and two of Luke were things that uh, only a little of it made it into Matthew and none of it made it into John or Mark. Uh, But here with the baptism of Christ, we find it in every gospel. Now, Each gospel is a little different. John doesn't actually show us the event at all. He just has John the Baptist recall that, oh yeah, I baptized him and something happened. Um, And here we don't actually see the baptism. We don't have it described for us. It's just told us that when he had been baptized, Christ was praying and something happened. Uh, So it seems that Luke's main focus is not upon the very important topic of baptism. That takes place here. It's a very important topic, but that's not the main point that Luke would have us get to. Remember, Luke desires us to be certain, and yet he doesn't describe the baptism here in detail. What does he want us to be certain about? And it seems... It seems clear he wants us certain about God, the Holy Trinity, at work. Uh, Here and in Matthew's account, we have uh, those beautiful moments when the doctrine of the Trinity, which is nowhere uh, fully packaged in one text of Scripture, nonetheless is presented to us in terms of God, the one God, in three distinct persons, that glorious mystery of the Trinity. And here we have the three persons each doing something. One commentator has, uh, has put it that the secret of the salvation of the elect is found here in the fact that the Holy Trinity works in perfect unity for our salvation. It isn't that Christ is doing something to trick the Father, some curmudgeon old, jealous God into forgiving us. It is that God, the holy, undivided Trinity, is at work of one mind and one purpose for us and for our salvation. And here, then, we have three points this morning. The first is that the Son aligns. 
The second is that the Spirit empowers. And the third is that the Father testifies. So first, the Son aligns. What what do I mean with the word align? He aligns with his people. Or, Or to put it differently, he comes to stand with his people. Christ comes to stand with his people. Well, we could say that's the entirety of the incarnation. He's coming to stand with his people the minute he is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But there is something very particular that Christ is declaring when he first is circumcised, something we looked at several weeks ago. And now part two of that same declaration as he is baptized. Christ comes to be baptized, and as the other gospel makes clear, John says, I need to be redeemed by your spirit baptism. Why would I baptize you with water? You don't need to even be saved. Why would you need the outward declaration of salvation? And Christ's response to John there is, let it be so, for so all righteousness will be fulfilled. Now, here in seeing righteousness fulfilled by Christ, it's not that Christ needs the outward sign of cleansing, even even, uh, as he doesn't need the inward reality of cleansing from sin. But here... We have him doing, as we saw with circumcision, that he is standing beside, he is doing all that is required of his people for them to be found righteous. So for you and I, if we were to be found righteous, we would perfectly keep all the commandments of God in thought, word, and deed, day and night, from our conception in the womb until our deathbeds. Obviously, we don't. But that would include keeping commands like be baptized, confess, and be a part of the visible church. And so Christ is not only keeping the moral law of God, he's keeping that law of God which calls on us to be part of the visible people of God. That which points to and represents what he's going to accomplish. He already did that with circumcision. He stood beside the Old Testament believer in circumcision and aligned himself with them as their representative. And here he comes alongside the New Testament believer and aligns himself with us in baptism. He's coming to stand beside. I was trying to think of uh, an illustration for what's going on here. And I thought of two completely inadequate ones, which I I will now share. Um, One of them is the story of the 40 martyrs. uh, Is it Sebast? I want to say the 40 martyrs of Sebast. You you may have read of them at one point. Uh, 39 believers were driven out in the middle of the night onto a frozen lake in the middle of winter, naked, to die. 
and the Roman soldiers stood around the lake to make sure none of them escaped uh, without rejecting Christ and saying Caesar is Lord or whatever they were required to say. And at a certain point during the night, as these 39 believers stood on the lake and prayed and sang hymns, one of the soldiers was convicted. He was a believer, but he had been a little cowardly, and now he's convicted. And so he took off his clothes and walked out onto the lake with the 39 and stood with them in faith and died with them, the 40 martyrs of Sebast. He went to stand with them. What an encouragement that must have been. I imagine at a certain point out there dying on the lake, maybe as your legs start giving out under you, maybe as you can't feel your feet anymore, you might be tempted to give up. And someone taking their clothes off and walking out on there to die with you might give you a little encouragement. That man went to stand beside, but that's a completely inadequate example. Because that man didn't save anyone out on the ice. He was an encouragement, nothing more. Another example, perhaps, would be, and I'm sure all of us have heard someone with this story or experienced it ourselves, perhaps, of uh, the bullies or the the big bullies coming and they're going to uh, hurt the little boy or, or whatever. And for some reason, they run away and Later, you find out Big Brother was rolling down the block behind you on his bike, or, uh, or Dad was standing not too far away, and they were scared off. And in that instance, we, we might say that's a type of saving you from the bullies, right? Here's Dad or Big Brother coming to stand with you against the bullies, and yet there, there's a problem there as well. So often in those situations... The, the individual who's bigger isn't actually suffering and experiencing what you're going through and may not be with you tomorrow on the way to school. But, so that also is inadequate. Imagine how Christ in his humiliation, standing with his people in their baptism, is so much more than either of these examples. He comes in his humiliation, to suffer all that his people suffer. Christ comes to experience all that we experience and to die and experience something that his people will never have to experience. And so Christ standing beside his people and his Humiliation and his baptism is accomplishing something and declaring something so much more. Here, Christ, in standing beside us, is saying, I am officially beginning my ministry of redemption, in which I represent you. I am with you before the throne of God. Christ stands with and aligns himself with his people. And he does so, not just in this moment of baptism, but all the way to the cross. And here too, he is infinitely different than that martyr, the soldier on the lake, or the big brother standing behind the young boy. Because in dying, 
he could not be held. He experienced all that his people experience, but death could not hold him. And he rose victorious and glorious. That glory which he he did not uh, make use of as he aligned himself with us for 33 years. That glory which would put him beyond pain and suffering. That glory by which he rose from the dead. He declares then in John 6 that he will one day raise up, raise up all those who behold the Son and believe in him on the last day. So here in Christ, aligning with his people is a declaration of something vast and eternal that is for our salvation. But in that, Our text also declares him spirit-empowered. The spirit empowers. We see Christ standing beside us in his baptism. And when he was baptized, we find him praying. I think this is, as an aside, a a bit of an encouragement for us to do what Westminster Larger Catechism calls improving our baptisms. That is, Christ doesn't just lean on the outward thing. He then applies it to his relationship with the Father. He cries out to the Father and speaks with the Father. What was he crying out? What was he praying? Well, of course, we aren't given that information, but we can can, uh, conclude from the result of his prayer that he is asking the Father for strength, for the task at hand. What he is taking on in aligning himself with us is a life of misery that ends in experiencing hell for the elect. And he is crying out to the Father for strength. You know, Christ, in a very real way, was choosing to live by faith for 33 years. He he never ceased to be God. At any moment, Christ could have hovered. At any moment, Christ could have transcended it all. At any moment, he could have called the angels from heaven to surround him and escort him back. He was fully God at all times from eternity past and throughout his life. But he chose to walk according to the the laws of physics. To tread on dusty roads. To have smelly and dirty feet that were weary at the end of the day. He chose uh, in his full humanity to submit himself to experiencing hunger and thirst. To have to ask for water. Instead of just magically creating it out of thin air. He, he could have spoken a word and had a cup with water in his hand. He was the one who in the beginning spoke and all things came out of nothing. And yet he submits himself to this humiliation in his oneness with us. Without giving up his Godhead, he lived by faith. Presumably he got the common cold. 
or whatever things like that were common in Israel in that day. He lived by faith, and how glorious to see then that in this task, he living by faith is empowered for the task by the Holy Spirit. Here, especially, we're not seeing the Holy Spirit coming upon Christ for the first time as if they have never been in union before. Remember, it's the Spirit who conceived Christ in Mary's womb. Remember that Luke has gone out of his way twice to show the Spirit's work within Christ and in Christ's life at different stages. In chapter 2, we were shown first that as a child, as a toddler, he grew in favor with God. And as a teenager, we're told that again, he grew in favor with God. We see the Spirit working and uniting Christ in this perfect union with the Father throughout his entire life. Christ is never spiritless. But here, uniquely, as he takes on this this task of Redeemer officially, the Spirit empowers Christ as the Spirit did of old in the prophets, in the priests, in the kings, in the judges, and in others. As the Spirit came with this special strength and ability to do what would otherwise be impossible for a mere man in the redemption and in the governance of God's people. Christ is given this empowerment. And we actually see here a a reflection into the Old Testament. Here in our two verses, we have an application of something we were told long before in Isaiah chapter 42. We read with Bill this morning. And recall the, the connection there. Let me read you just one of those verses again. We hear God declare, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And then there's the long list of all that Christ will do. So as we behold the baptism of Christ and the the empowerment of the Spirit in verse 21 and 22 of our text, Luke is showing us the application of Isaiah 42. God declared, here is my chosen servant. Throughout the remainder of Isaiah, we're going to get those servant songs which will unpack what the servant will do for our salvation. But the first thing the Father says is, here is my servant in whom I delight, as he will say here, with whom I am well pleased. And there in Isaiah 42, he says, how will he do this? My spirit is upon him to do it. Christ receives the Spirit's power as Redeemer to accomplish this glorious task for us and for our salvation. And then we also find the Father testifies. The Father testifies of his love for the Son. The Father is testifying here of who the Son is. 
And the Father is testifying of how far the work of the Son will go. The the Father is testifying just blatantly right on the surface of His love for the Son. And again, here we have Isaiah 42, verse 1, applied by God the Father. I take delight in Him. I love Him. God the Father will three times bring this testimony. Remember elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that God can't swear by anything other than himself. In the Gospels, we have God, the superlative witness, testifying three times to his superlative pleasure in Christ. We find him speaking from heaven here at the beginning of Christ's ministry, probably especially wanting us to realize that his pleasure in the Son, uh, not only from eternity past, that's absolutely true, but in a particular way here, the Father saying, 30 years of humiliation and suffering, I'm pleased in how he has lived, in how he has served me. And then again on the Mount of Transfiguration, we'll come back to, why God speaks from heaven there, what he's doing in a moment. But then the third time is in John 12, in the shadow of the cross, at the end of this three-year ministry, God the Father will declare again his love. The, The ministry hasn't changed anything. He's pleased with how the ministry of Christ went. God is supremely pleased. The Father loves his Son And he's not only pleased in him, in in his love for him, but he's pleased to announce to us here who the Son is. Again, Isaiah 42. My servant in whom I am well pleased. By reflecting back on that, God the Father from heaven at the baptism of Christ is saying to us, here's the servant that you've been waiting for. The servant who throughout that last half of Isaiah is presented doing the task of redemption for the Jew, for the Gentile. Doing the work of redemption as the suffering servant who will take our place and be crushed for our iniquities. And God here at his baptism is saying, this is him. I'm pleased in him but you should recognize him. Of course, John does recognize him, doesn't he? That's why John said right before the baptism, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. That's why John will soon after declare, behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. But we too are to recognize him. Not only John. And here this passage is declaring to us not only the Father's love for the Son, but who the Son is. He's the servant. But more than that, the Father is also declaring to us how far the servant will go and how far he, God, is uh, the Father is determined to go for us and for our salvation. Because Isaiah 42 isn't the only obvious 
grammatical connection to our text here today, there's another one as well. The language used here in Luke 3, 21 and 22 reflects us back on Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham of his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. God just takes that wording here and applies it to his own relationship with Christ. The father declares, this is my son, my only begotten son whom I love. Well, then Genesis 22 shows us how far he is willing to go for our salvation. Abraham, since you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love. And God is declaring at Christ's baptism here, I will not withhold my son, my only begotten son, whom I love. Here we have the ram in the thickets brought back into our sight. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Surely, surely, John, amongst the many images of Lamb in the Old Testament, surely as he heard these words from heaven, my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, surely he must have reflected on the ram in the thickets caught by its horns, which God gives in the place of Abram's son, so that he might live. And God here is declaring to you and I, I give my son, my only son, in whom I am pleased, even to death. Well, so much more could be said of the Trinity at work. But as we reflect on on these three things, these events, these actions taken here, Christ standing with his people, aligning with them, the Spirit empowering Christ for his work, the Father testifying of Christ. I think there are two applications we might make, very practical ones, as we reflect on the Father saying, this is my Son, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. First, if the Father so loves the Son, first very basic piece of application for us would be to say, if the Father so loves the Son, so should we. If the Father so loves His Son, so should we. We too should love His Son. Now, that's easy to say, and we say, well, of course, who doesn't love Jesus? But this is where God the Father speaking the second time from heaven comes in. Because the second time he speaks from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration, recall why he's speaking. Because people who legitimately loved Christ, James and John and particularly Peter, are wanting to express that love 
in an unbiblical manner. They are recreating Christ in in the image of Moses and Elijah rather than as the only begotten son. They're putting him on a teacher level instead of on the redeemer level and and the God level. And so the father speaks from heaven. This is my son. Not Moses. He's not my son. Not Elijah. He's not my son. This is my son. Hear him. If we are to say, well, the Father loves the Son, so should we, then we need to love the Son as the Father presents Him to us in the Gospel. As the Savior, not the guru and not the self-help teacher, not the nice guy, but as God the Son come in the flesh. But we cannot say we, like the Father, love the Son and reject what the gospel says about the atonement of the cross, about the purpose in Christ's coming, and in why the Father is pleased, the work of redemption, which, although he doesn't speak from heaven a fourth time in the gospels, the New Testament makes clear he gives his final declaration of pleasure in the Son by raising him from the dead. So if the Father loves the Son, we must love the Son in this manner, loving Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures, believing in Him as He is declared in the Scriptures. And Christ even adds an extra thing to that, that if we love Him, we express that by keeping His commandments John 14:15 Not only do we love him by accepting who the father says he is but the father declares him to be king A third text you could go and look up that reflects upon the father's wording here would be Psalm 2 The father declaring his pleasure in the king he has set to reign Well, if Christ is the king the Father has set to reign, and we love him as the Father loves him, then we must seek to submit to his rule in our lives. So we hear the Father testify to who the Son is, and if we are to love him as the Father loves him, we must accept who the Father is testifying he is. And then a second very practical application from these words of the Father. If the Father loves Christ, and if you are in Christ, the Father loves you. It's simple logic, isn't it? If you are in Christ, united to him, by the work of the Spirit, so that you are engrafted into Christ as a branch to the tree, then the Father loves you too. Or or think of other language the New Testament uses. If you are engrafted into the church, the body of Christ, and therefore as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, the church, Christ is going to present us, the church, the bride, 
to his Father one day because he loves us and the Father loves him. The Father will love the bride. This is what Paul teaches again and again in the New Testament. And it's actually this precise comfort for us that Isaiah 42 leads us to in declaring who Christ is. If God loves the servant, as he declares he does, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And then it tells us of that servant. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking going out flax he will not put out. He will not quench. That's love. That's the son's love for the weak believer. If he loves us and the father loves him, then the father loves us in him. Could there be any greater encouragement to assurance in your life than that? If you are in Christ, He will not put you out. He will not break you. And in him, the father loves you. Could there be any greater encouragement or sweetness to the call of the gospel to share with others than that? That in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God loves the one who is in the son. What a great motivation that we can offer. Let's pray.